Welcome to Louisiana Considered. I'm Adam Voss. Just ahead, a conversation about the history of baseball in New Orleans and one Louisiana native black baseball player who signed with the Brooklyn Dodgers shortly after Jackie Robinson and almost became the first black pitcher in the major leagues. But first, Research at LSU is looking into the potential for climate change to affect rice yields. Rice is one of the important crops here in Louisiana and around the world. LSU's research is looking at what can be done to make rice more climate resilient. Prasanta Sabuti is a professor in LSU's School of Plant, Environmental, and Soil Sciences. He joins us now. Thank you for being here. Thank you. So when we think climate change in Louisiana, we almost automatically make the assumption we're talking about more water in the atmosphere and on the ground, more groundwater flooding. But that's not necessarily the case, as as we've discovered with the recent wildfire threat, the drought, it's possible for the terrain to be too dry as well here in Louisiana. So with rice, what is it that you expect to be the issue, too wet, too dry, or some other climatic issue? Let me tell you our Louisiana in particular. So there are threats like salinity is one threat and drought and heat stress. Those three are the major stresses affecting rice crop. Because of climate change, there has been a shift in global temperature and also carbon dioxide concentration. So that is one thing. You you talked about also the more water thing because that is not usually the case because we are dealing with mostly drought stress. Because in Arkansas, which is the major producer, as well as Louisiana, uh, drought is going to be severe stress. And heat stress is also important for rice crop because heat affects both yield as well as quality of the rice crop. I see. What are some of the hypotheses that you're working from? Uh, Climate resiliency, actually, we have two components in our project. So our hypothesis is that the climate-resilient rice can help to mitigate the impact of climate change. Number two is that we need to develop some cultural practices or production practices which can help realize the climate resilience of the new cultivars. In case of uh, the impact of climate change also is to reduce the uh, use of chemicals and fertilizers. So in that respect, we are working on developing rice varieties which can use less nitrogen without compromising the yield. That is one thing. Another thing is resistance to diseases and pests. Because climate affects the (laughs) new pests and diseases, so we want to incorporate the host plant resistant to the rice varieties so that you can reduce the dependence on chemicals. Is this primarily a concern of the economic impact of the growth of rice as a crop where it's grown? Or are you also looking at the impacts of rice yields as far as feeding the world? With the increase in consumer preference and living standard and also increased population. So in that case, we will need actually more than 50% increase in crop productivity or food production But that is not uh, happening now because crop productivity has almost plateaued in most of the crops. We have already done a lot of work during the last 90 to 100 years, which has increased almost 400% of the crop. You mentioned that part of the impetus for the study is 
the fact that rice production has plateaued kind of at the top of what we can do with the technology, with the developments that have been realized over the past few millennia of humans being agricultural, and now it might be time for the next step. What are some of the possible solutions that you're anticipating with the study? Because of climate change, the quality as well as amount of resources is dwindling. Resources, natural resources like land, water, air, like temperature, these are actually creating a lot of problems for rice cultivation. Because usually the varieties which we are using, they are bred for optimal conditions, to grow well under optimal conditions. So we have rice varieties that really perform in ideal conditions, and the, the issue is ideal conditions don't happen very often, or they'll be happening less often. You're looking at rice varieties then, so we're talking about breeding, are we talking about genetic modification, are all those on the table? Genetic modification is not on the table. Because I know that most of the rice farmers in the U.S., they are not very receptive to the genetic modifications. So that is why we are using mostly the conventional breeding and using some molecular technologies so that we can track the genes. Through a traditional Through breeding Through traditional methods. breeding. We're speaking with Prasanta Sabuti, a professor in LSU School of Plant, Environmental, and Soil Sciences, principal investigator on research that's being spearheaded on climate-resilient rice. Tell me, in the end, what are the implications for Louisiana and Louisiana's rice industry, both in the short term and the long term? Louisiana, uh, in the short term, I think development of particularly heat-tolerant varieties will be of interest. And salinity, nobody talks about, but that will be a major problem in the longer term. Because if you see now, in northern Louisiana also, farmers are all complaining that they have salt concentration higher than the plant can tolerate. You mentioned part of it isn't just developing varieties to save the rice. There's also the issue of getting farmers to adopt it. And that sounds like sort of a sociological issue. Is it tough to persuade farmers that this is an issue right now? That's an interesting question. Actually, in this project, we are also involving sociologists and economists as well as crop modelers to find out what are the impacts of current packages of practices. What farmers are doing, what are these impacts, and what are the limitations for adopting the new package of practices. So they will be studied by the ecologist and sociologist and also the crop modelers like environmental impact of those studies. Are there any examples from prior research into environmental stresses on agriculture where you can point to methods of getting buy-in from farmers and the industry to to make these changes happen are there examples of how you how you make that work from from other agricultural science persuasion is very important because farmers are very uh, skeptical about the science also when they uh, talk about new technologies so that's why they have to stress what is the impact and why it is important for them to adopt this technology so that it can be sustainable in the longer term. Prasanta Sabuti is a professor in LSU School of Plant, Environmental, and Soil Sciences. Prasanta is spearheading research on climate-resilient rice here in Louisiana. Thank you for your time today. Thank you. 
From WRKF and WWNO, this is Louisiana Considered. I'm Adam Voss. Last night, the Arizona Diamondbacks punched their ticket to the 2023 World Series, where they will face off against the Texas Rangers. And with games beginning tomorrow night, we wanted to take this time to look back into baseball history in New Orleans. While no team exists in New Orleans today, the city was once a baseball bastion. Not only were there three minor league teams like the Zephyrs and the Baby Cakes, but years earlier, Negro League teams like the New Orleans Black Pelicans, Crescent City Stars, and the Zulus captivated the city. But even those familiar with New Orleans baseball history might not know the name of native son Johnny Wright, a black baseball player who signed with the Brooklyn Dodgers shortly after Jackie Robinson and who almost became the first black pitcher in the major leagues. For more on Johnny Wright, his often overlooked story, and his legacy, our managing producer Alana Schreiber spoke with Bob Kendrick, president of the Negro League's Baseball Museum in Kansas City. Bob, can you just start by telling us a bit about Johnny Wright's early years? What do we know about his childhood in New Orleans and how he first got into baseball? Well, Johnny Wright grew up, as you mentioned, there in New Orleans and during a time when poverty was pretty prevalent in that area, particularly for Black folks in the Deep South. But he found baseball and became quite the talented baseball player as a youngster there growing up in New Orleans and then ultimately landed with the Zulu team that you referenced. There were several variations of Zulu teams, and these were almost like minstrel shows. Mm -hmm. The players would actually dress up in grass skirts. They would paint their faces to mimic an African tribe. And... I'm sure in retrospect, when they went back and thought about it, it was certainly very demeaning in many ways, but it gave them an opportunity to pursue their baseball careers. Mm. Uh, and then more times than not, these teams were being promoted by by white folks, which added a whole nother level of being uh, feeling demeaned. In the moment, you do what you have to do to follow your passion. Yeah. And baseball was Johnny Wright's passion. And he was doggone good at it. And so baseball would help him get out of New Orleans and pursue a significant professional baseball career in the Negro Leagues. Yeah, well, well, let's hear more about that. So once he left New Orleans, where did Wright find success? What were some of the big moments of his career? Well, he, he played for any number of teams. Uh, ranging from the Indianapolis Clowns to the Pittsburgh Crawfords, and the Crawfords were moving at that time. They were also playing in Indianapolis over a spell of time. He, but his big break came with the Newark Eagles and then ultimately the powerful Homestead Grays. And it, honestly, it was with the Grays that Johnny Wright really started to develop into this dynamic pitcher. When you looked at him physically, you didn't see this big arm. As a matter of fact, if I was going to try and draw a comparison to someone baseball fans would recognize, the first name that comes to mind would be Pedro Martinez. Huh. And when you look at Pedro on the mound, he seemingly looked larger than life because he threw so hard. But then when you met him in real life, you're like, oh man, this is a little guy. 
the arm defied the physical size. And that was much the same with Johnny Wright. Well, yeah, I, I, I want to say I love the comparison to Pedro Martinez because I remember going to watch him and, you know, like any home team fan, you wait till your team is in the field when they're not going to be scoring runs to go use the bathroom. But when Pedro's pitching, <laughs> you stay and watch Pedro and you you use the bathroom when your team is batting. Well, <laughs> <laughs> So Branch Rickey, the Dodgers manager who signed Jackie Robinson, he actually signed Johnny Wright just months after Robinson and before he'd even debuted. How did he find out about Wright and was the plan for them to integrate baseball together? I don't know if that was Rickey's master plan that they would integrate together. We know now that there was certainly that possibility because Rickey, who has certainly been held as a saint, and I have very little doubt there was certainly a level of righteousness that was innate. But as I also remind folks, there was a level of diabolicalness to Ricky from the standpoint that he was looking to come into the Negro Leagues and essentially raided of his star talent without any compensation to those Negro League owners. And he felt like he could do that and yet have no legal ramifications whatsoever in the process. And I think when he looked at Johnny Wright and the success that Johnny Wright had had, particularly playing in military baseball, that opened his eyes that Johnny Wright could be a great companion to Jackie there in Montreal. And quite frankly, there's a lot of belief that Ricky had signed Johnny Wright well before the reported date of Ricky signing Johnny Wright. Wow. Uh, and assigning him to Montreal along with Jackie Robinson. And I know Jackie had great admiration for Johnny Wright. And I think Jackie was saddened when Johnny Wright's career didn't pan out the way that perhaps both of them thought it would. And, and I do think it took a special person. There'll be people who will read or learn about Johnny Wright's story, and they'll see that the numbers, once he gets to, again, organized baseball, they were not that great. But the numbers don't always tell the story. And, and for these black and brown players who left the Negro Leagues to pursue this major league opportunity, they were being taken out of their comfort zone. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think Johnny struggled with all the name calling and everything. This wasn't just coming to the stadium to boo the opposing team. You were the target. You and many reasons why you in many ways were the reason that they came because they wanted to hurl these mean-spirited things. And see, Jackie was a different animal. Jackie had the fortitude to deal with that. What I find really, really interesting about this is, you know, Jackie Robinson and Johnny Wright, they're together in Montreal in the Dodgers farm system. That's when Johnny really struggles. But you know, they come from really different backgrounds. Jackie is a college graduate, grew up in Pasadena, California, was more used to integration. Then you have Johnny Wright, grew up in New Orleans, was more used to segregation. Do you think this was part of Branch Rickey's plan to see who would do better with all of this racial hatred, the guy who was used to integration or the guy who was used to segregation? Or was well, that you know, more of a coincidence? I don't, I don't know if I would think that Ricky was that far forward in his thinking relative to that. 
I think when he looked at Johnny Wright, I think he saw a ball player whose temperament, even though they came from different environments, uh, as you mentioned, Jackie's college educated. He is worldly in many regards. And he had the advantage of having competed with and against white athletes. And then on the other side of the ledger, here's a guy from the Deep South who had spent the better part of his career playing with those in the Negro Leagues. Now, he had competed against some white major leaguers on some of those rare barnstorming uh, instances and had fared quite well against white major leaguers along the barnstorming circuit. But I think this was the challenge of most of the guys, and this is one of the reasons why Jackie was the right guy to be the first, which doesn't mean that there weren't other Negro leaguers who could have done what he did, but as we've talked about before, the first guy cannot fail. Yeah. If the first guy fails, there is no second guy. And uh, it was interesting to me, though, that Ricky would bring a pitcher and put him in that position. Because the pitching position, if we looked at the positions around Diamond, that was, a, that was the position that was most likely had the chance of failing, was the pitcher. And that's part of the reason why Satchel wasn't the first. Now, Satchel was likely too flamboyant for the more majority of the other owners, and there was always the age-old mystery around just how old mm -hmm. Satchel really was. Bill Vec was likely the only owner that would have given the old man an opportunity to pitch, and Satchel didn't let him down. But there were those who compared Johnny Wright to Satchel. Wow. If you're just comparing stuff for stuff, Johnny Wright's stuff, in the eyes of a lot of folks in the Negro Leagues, certainly was comparable to Satchel Paige. We are speaking with Bob Kendrick, president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City. I want to go back to talking about the pitching position. I, I know that that is part of what made it really difficult for Johnny. You know, Jackie Robinson over at second base, you can almost kind of blend in a little bit more if you have to. But when you're a pitcher, you're really running the show. And then, of course, there's always the the thought that maybe you might accidentally hit a white batter. I know that that was something that Dan Bankhead, the first pitcher in the major leagues, struggled with. Can you just tell me a little bit more about that and the pressure that pitchers had on them that was different from other players? I oftentimes wonder, and I sometimes wonder this out loud, as I'm about to do now, if there were those who wanted to see the black pitcher fail because it would adhere to that fundamental belief that they had that the African-American pitcher wasn't smart enough. This is, in essence, the Black quarterback. And there was this underlying belief that this was a cerebral position and that we lacked the faculties to play that role. As a matter of fact, there were those who believed that we lacked the faculties to play the game itself. You know, as I go back and I think about a letter that was written by then New York Yankees uh, managing partner Larry McPhail that he had written to New York City Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia in 1945. Mayor LaGuardia, if you may recall, had put together a commission to examine integration of Major League Baseball. In the letter, McPhail outlines why integration was such a bad idea. MacPhail would go on to say, well, you know 
they lack the faculties to play in our league. Now, I don't know when you had to be a Rhodes Scholar to play baseball, but that <laughs> seemed to be the underlying mindset of these owners was that these Black athletes weren't smart enough to play in the major leagues, when in actuality, we know that some 40% of the athletes who played in the Negro Leagues, Atlanta had some level of college education. Less than 5% of those who played in the major leagues at that same time had any college education, as my friend Buck O'Neill would say, for the simple fact that the major leagues didn't want you to go to college. They got you right out of high school, put you into their farm system, and then you eventually work your way to the big leagues. Well, the Negro leagues didn't have that kind of sophisticated farm system. So what did we do? We trained on the campuses of historically black colleges and universities. We would play the black college baseball teams and then recruit a great deal of that workforce from those HBCUs. So there was a disproportionate number of college-educated athletes in the Negro Leagues compared to the major leagues. As we know, Jackie Robinson walks into a clubhouse where he is likely the most intellectual being in that clubhouse. Absolutely. And yet he is treated in such an incredibly harsh manner. And, and so that whole notion of not being smart enough which had governed the black pitcher. This is really, like I said, it is in essence, the black quarterback. The yeah. whole mindset that we weren't smart enough to play this role. And so you do wonder sometimes if they were hoping that these guys would fail because it would prove their point. And so when you go back and you look at the handful of black pitchers that got an opportunity, if you didn't come out and establish yourself right away, you out. You didn't get a fair shake. And I don't think Johnny Wright ever got a fair shake. Dan Bankhead never got a fair shake. And you're right. I do think that mentally, why both Bankhead and Wright struggled with their control was that they were afraid of what the repercussions would be if they hit a white batter. Well, you know, we know that Johnny Wright struggled in Montreal and the Dodgers farm system. But his career in baseball wasn't over. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, him going back to the Negro Leagues and really, you know, what we know about the remainder of his life? Well, he went back home. He went back home. He went back to a place that he was comfortable, that he felt like he could be himself. And his career took back off again, you know, and it wasn't about the level of competition. It was about being in an environment where you were comfortable, where you could showcase your skills, and be your natural self. Before we go, back in 2022, Johnny Wright was inducted into the Greater New Orleans Sports Hall of Fame. And while this is exciting, it also seems years overdue. Why do you think it took so long for him to get the recognition he deserved? And what, what do you think it means that he was finally honored like this? Well, for him to be recognized at home. And we all want to be recognized at home. And... He is also kind of part of that forgotten group of unheralded stars of the Negro Leagues, uh, who in his own way was a barrier breaker right there alongside Jackie Robinson. And the fact that Jackie Robinson would bring Johnny Wright to play on his traveling all-star team during the offseason, to me, is indicative of how impressed Jackie was with Johnny Wright and the talent that Johnny Wright possessed. 
Bob Kendrick, president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City. Thank you so much for being here. And thank you for generating that awareness about a ball player that we should know, one Johnny Wright. And that's Louisiana Considered on a Wednesday. A thank you to LSU Professor Prasanta Sabuti. Also to our producer, Alana Schreiber. I'm Adam Voss. Thanks for listening. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from Tulane School of Public Health.